0: continue in this book. And um, what I want to do is just make sure we're all on the same page, because we need to understand that when we talk about uh, pursuing God, we are not talking about pursuing knowledge about God. Although clearly, knowledge about God is important. That leads us to experience God as we know who he is. But we're not talking about that. When we talk about pursuing God, we're not talking about pursuing the benefits of God. Although clearly God wants us to walk in the benefits, the blessings that he has for us. When we're talking about uh, pursuing God, we're not talking about pursuing uh, the miracles and the wonders of God, although clearly he wants us to experience all of that. When we're talking about pursuing God, we are talking about pursuing God in actual experience. Now, for some of us, that might be a bit of a, say what? Moments? Isn't God up there in the heavens, detached from us? Or for some of you, maybe you're here at church, maybe you're visiting and you're thinking, well, didn't God exist thousands of years ago? But, you know, he's no longer around. He's just some historical figure that we talk about. See, the the heart of this message about pursuing God is the truth that we can pursue God, the truth that we can experience his presence. That beautiful testimony that you gave earlier, Frank, yeah. it's just beautiful, about you experienced the presence of God, that you prayed and you gave it to him, and you slept in his presence. That was a God thing, as you, as you shared. Or well, that you, you experienced God's direction, in his, God's wisdom. You experienced his very presence. God can be available to us if we pursue him. And so when we talk about pursuing God, we're not talking about pursuing God in a passive sense in other words as if it can happen by osmosis we often think who who has heard that phrase someone might have told you uh, said this to you oh well your christian faith is just a crutch isn't it yeah after a few yeah someone said that really have you tried have you have you been a christian have you read the bible about how we're supposed to run the race with perseverance have you read the bible about we have to fix our eyes on the prize and throw off every sin and other things that hinder us? You think that's a crutch? You think it's easy? Because the truth is that we have our part to play. Jesus, as we're going to find out in a moment, has done everything on the cross for us, but we have a response to make for that truth and walk into the freedom, into the presence of God that Jesus' blood has paid for us. And so when we talk about pursuing God, this message at its heart therefore means that you have a decision, we, I have a decision, whether or not I'm going to respond to the urge that God places in my heart to seek And So at the start of this talk, I'm going to ask you that question. You have to put your hand up or tell me. Are you going to pursue God? Do you want to pursue God? Because if the answer is yes, then we have some work to do this morning, which we're going to look at. And it brings us to chapter three, therefore, of this book. And it is called Removing... THE VEIL, REMOVING THE VEIL. AND uh, WE ARE GOING TO LOOK AT HEBREWS CHAPTER 10. Uh, IT WILL BE ON THE SCREEN. Uh, AND IF YOU ARE AT HOME, ONLINE, ON YOUR DEVICE, IT WILL BE ON YOUR DEVICE AS WELL. Uh, CHAPTER no, uh, 10, 19 TO 20. Um, THE WRITER TO THE HEBREWS WRITES THIS, THEREFORE, BROTHERS AND INDEED SISTERS, SINCE WE HAVE CONFIDENCE TO ENTER THE HOLY PLACES BY THE BLOOD OF JESUS, BY THE NEW AND LIVING WAY THAT HE OPENED FOR US THROUGH THE CURTAIN, THAT IS, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, what, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Wow, that's pretty heavy, right? That sounds pretty deep. I mean, in some ways, it sounds pretty confusing and complex. And A.W. Tozer does a very good job of expounding on this, which is what I'm going to look at. And as I said at the start of this series, no apologies for basing a lot of my content on, on the book. And you see, let's look at this. What does it mean? It says here, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter what the holy place is. Now, this holy place is, we need to understand what that means. If we're to fully understand what Jesus did on the cross. The holy places, or the holy of holies, was actually a specific place. And in order for us to understand this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Because as some of you may recall, God instructed the Israelites to to build a tabernacle, a place where they could go and worship God. And in fact, we've got a drawing on the screen that we can look at, which gives you an overview of what that tabernacle looked like. There it is. You've got that tent of meeting there. Now, you've got there the altar of burnt offering. And this is where the priests would uh, sacrifice offerings daily. And this area here is called the outer court. Okay? And then what happens? They would go through, and then you'd have what's called the lava there. Laver, sorry. Which is where the priests would wash themselves ceremonially. Okay? They had to go through that process before they got into the first place called the holy place. Now, this holy place had a table with the shoe bread, the bread, which was to be a foreshadow of Jesus, the very bread of life, who was always in there. And in fact, it's called the presence bread, the bread of presence. And then you would have the curtain or the veil. And this veil would be segregate the, the, the holy place with the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And in that place is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the tablets did, the Ten Commandments. And so that was the process. You had the outer courts, you had the holy place, and then you had the most holy place. And actually, if you read in Hebrews 9, the writer to the Hebrews actually gives an overview. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table, He's talking about the, the holy place there and the bread of the presence. There you go. It is called the holy place. Now, but beyond, behind the second curtain, there you go, was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot master. Okay, so that is what God had instructed Israel to put together. And then if you read Solomon's temple, they had a very similar one. They replaced the, the laver with something slightly different. And then we had the third temple, um, the second temple. And then we will have the third temple if you read the book of Revelation. Now, could anyone go into the Holy of Holies? <laughs> right, thank Die. Why? Because this was the very presence of God. Now, God had promised that He would presence Himself in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And only the high priest could go into that place, and only then once a year on, on Yom Kippur, which is the, the, the festival, the Day of Atonement. And so once a year, the high priest would go through that ritual of washing themselves and they would offer. The, the incense, and then they would go through the curtain into the most holy place, and God would descend, and there would be the Shekinah glory, the, the manifest glory of God in that place. Now, um, it's interesting to note that legend said that what the priest, the other priest, would do is tie a golden rope to the ankle of the high priest, lest they should die because they hadn't gone through the process properly and so the other priests could pull them out. What does that show us, right? You might be thinking, wow, what a strange God. No, it shows us what a holy God. And that you, a holy God cannot be with unclean, uncleanness, of which sin has made us unclean. And so that is why, you see, that curtain separated God from man. Why? Because of the separation that came in the Garden of Eden. You see, that's what happens. The curtain, boom, came down when Adam and Eve. Stayed. No more could man have a relationship with God. So this is the veil that we are talking about here. And you know what? I've got to say, this veil, I was doing some research. It was about 60 foot high. 30 feet wide, and it was about four inches thick. This is not just some kind of, well, it's not that kind of curtain. It's thick, it's four inches. Now, you might be saying, okay, Mark, that's very interesting, and thank you for the historical overview. But what on earth has that got to do with pursuing God now? I'm glad you asked me that question. You're very clever, it's an important question. And the answer is found in the New Testament, of course, and we could continue to read Hebrews for the answer, but I want us to look at Matthew 27, verses 50 to 51. The answer is found in the events in the crucifixion. This is what happened. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This huge curtain, this four-inch thick curtain, was suddenly torn supernaturally. Man could not tear it. You know, they said that you couldn't even get two horses on either side with a rope to try and pull this curtain aside. It wasn't from the bottom up. It was from heaven down that God tore the court curtain. No longer was there a barrier between God and man. You know, it says in Hebrews 10, 19, 20, what do we read? We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain. Listen to this. That is his body. See, that curtain was his body. And as his body was crucified, as he was whipped during the crucifixion process, as they speared his side that curtain was torn as well. Because Jesus, you see, is our high priest. And he entered that holy place on our behalf. And rather than a sacrifice that could only be given once a year, he gave a sacrifice to cover us for all time. It is finished, he said. And so the good news is, is that the veil that was once there to separate us from entering into the very presence of God, it's gone. That's it, it's gone. That means, are we, are we fully getting, I don't think I fully comprehend this, because it's the same God that said to the priest, you need to go through that process and s- sacrifice and cleanse yourself before you can even come into my presence. That God hasn't changed. And that God is inviting us into His presence. Don't you find that mind-boggling? Well, we should be running then, really. I mean, we should be going into His presence every time we can. I mean, we should be looking to enter His presence with much frequency and duration, right? How come that doesn't happen? Can you imagine if, we're, if we're there, who loved Back to the Future? <laughs> um, Six notes, and you all know what it is. I want a DeLorean. Anyone want a DeLorean? Apparently, they're, they're launching a new DeLorean, I read in the paper. Anyway, what am I talking about? Right, there was a mo- <laughs> point. Imagine if we went to Back to the Future and said to one of the high priests, come over here. What is this? It's a car. It's a DeLorean. Very cool. We need to get to 88 miles an hour, and then we're going to go to 2023. And he arrives. Right, where's the temple of God? In your heart. Say what? But where's my robes that I have to wear? What? Where's the labour? No labour required. What? This is amazing news! You can imagine how excited he would be. Why am I not that excited? Fair point, isn't it? Imagine if we got into the car back, back in time. Where's God? Sorry, mate. Only the high priest over there can go you. I'm trying to just unpack it now. This is where uh, Tozer takes us from this point, and where I'm going to start quoting a bit of Tozer, because he makes the very good point, which is this: Why is it, therefore, that we don't run into God's presence if the veil is torn? Well, the second title of this of this talk is this: A Tale of Two Veils. He takes a pause for dramatic effect. (laughs) Let me quote Tozer, because he does a better job than I do of explaining. We sense that the call is for us, but still we fail to draw near. And the years pass and we grow old and tired in the outer courts of the tabernacle. What hinders us? The answer usually given, simply that we are cold will not explain all the facts. You see, there is something more serious than coldness of heart. Something that may be behind the coldness and be the cause of its existence. What is it? What but the presence of a veil in our A veil not taken away as the first veil was, but which remains there, still shutting out the light and hiding the face of God us. It is the veil of our fleshly, fallen nature, living on, unjudged within us, uncrucified, and unrepudiated. And Toza goes on to say, it is woven of the fine threads of the self-life. The hyphenated sins of the human spirit, they are not something we do, they are something we are. And therein lies both their subtlety and To be specific, the self-sins are self-righteousness, self-pity and self-confidence, self-sufficiency and self-admiration, self-love and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much part of our nature to come to our attention until the light of God focuses. Hmm. And I think Toza makes a very valid point here. You see, the grosser sins, we can often use that phrase, those things that, you know, drunkenness, sex outside marriage, or, you know, pornography, or, you know, gossip, or slander, or swearing, you know, all of these things that are obvious. We say, well, we can name those things. But what if I told you there are these subtle sins that we have as part of our self-life? that we justify to ourselves. Now, I'm going to tell you here that your pastor has some of these self-sins. <gasps> no, nice. shock, horror. It's true. I was praying about this on Friday, and I was like, Lord, I'm, I was thinking about the word that I was bringing, I'm like, Lord, you've got to work this talk in me deeply, because I've done the research, I've read, I understand it, but and then all of a sudden, the Lord brought to me self pity. Now, I'm like, what? You know, you indulge in self-pity. No, I don't. I'm just tired. And life is difficult. And I have challenges. No, you indulge in self-pity. No, I don't, Lord. (laughs) We don't have enough help around us. The kids are of an age now where they're going through... No, Mark. You indulge in self-pity. Now, I've learned that God's not necessarily going to say anything new after we've kind of accepted what he said the first time. So I was like, okay. And you know what? As a Holy Spirit shone his light on that, I was like, you know, I think that's true. I have justified a self-sin because I've made it so part of me that I couldn't see it. But because I was willing and acknowledged the fact that I had a veil, the Holy Spirit came and has shone a light on. And you see, when we pursue God, we have to recognise that the call to walk in as a disciple of Jesus requires us to do some work ourselves. Because oftentimes we think the Christian faith is this. Jesus died on the cross for you, so go live your best life. I mean, you just go search YouTube and you'll get hundreds of those talks. You don't have to do anything. Just have enough faith. You can have whatever you want. Sorry, um, doesn't the Bible talk about the work we've got to do? No, don't worry. God's done it all for you. Yes, he's removed that veil. There's nothing stopping us getting into God's presence, but we've got a veil on our hearts. And that's what I think is very important here and what Tozer makes a very good point now. So, how do we go about removing that veil? What do I need to do, pastor? Well, I've got some good news and some bad news. What do you want first? Bad news. right. There is no bad news. There's no bad news. But let me quote Tozer again. I'll let him do the delivery. Let us beware of tinkering with our inner life, hoping ourselves to remove and rend the veil. God must do everything for us. Pastor, I thought you said that we've got to do something. Yes, here it comes. Are you ready? Our part is to yield and to trust. Our part is to yield and to trust. We must confess, forsake, and reject the self-life, and then reckon it crucified. crucify. But we must be careful to distinguish between lazy acceptance from the real work of God, what does that mean? we must insist upon the work we do. We dare not rest content with a neat doctrine of self crucifixion. What does Toza mean by that? We can say that makes a lot of sense. I get that, thank you. It just stays here. You see, the real work happens in our heart as we heal. As we trust. I'm going to invite the band up as I, as I bring this plane to uh, a smooth landing. You know, Jesus himself said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, if anyone would make a decision to pursue me. So this is addressed, if you have said at the start of this service, uh, at the start of my talk, I want to pursue God. So if you've said to yourselves, yes, I want to pursue God, then listen up because Jesus is talking to you right now, okay? Am I clear? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And let me end with Toza's words. The cross that you and I are called to take up is rough and deadly, but it is effective. It does not keep its victim hanging there forever. There comes a moment when its work is finished and the suffering victim dies. After that is resurrection glory and power. And the pain is forgotten, the joy that the veil is taken away. We have entered into actual spiritual experience of the presence of the living God. What will stand?